Welcome to another adult Bible study guide exploring the book of Job. Written by Clifford Goldstein. Edited for audio and produced by the Ambassador Group. Narrated by Byron Phillips and Lynette Newhart. Exploration 10. The Wrath of Elihu. Just as the heavens are higher than the earth, my thoughts and my ways are higher than yours. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 9, Contemporary English Version. And so it goes, the battle of words between Job and these three men, words that at times are profound, beautiful, deep, and true. How often people will quote from the book of Job, even quotes from Eliphaz, Bildad, or Zophar. And that's because, as we have seen over and over, they did have a lot of good things to say. They just didn't say them in the right place, at the right time, in the right circumstances. What this should teach us is the powerful truth of these texts in Proverbs 25, verses 11 through 13, also from the Contemporary English Version. The right word, at the right time, is like precious gold, set in silver. Listening to good advice is worth much more than jewelry made of gold. A messenger you can trust is just as refreshing as cool water in summer. Unfortunately, these weren't the words that Job was hearing from his friends. In fact, the problem was going to get worse because instead of just three people telling him he's wrong, a new one comes on the scene. Unfortunately, these weren't the words that Job was hearing from his friends. In fact, the problem was going to get worse because instead of just three people telling him he's wrong, a new one comes on the scene. Miserable Comforters Job chapter 13 verses 15 and 16 report that Job said, Even though he kills me, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways to his face. This also will be my salvation, for a godless man may not come before him. Even after Job's powerful expression of faith, the verbal sparring continued. Over the course of many chapters, the men go back and forth, arguing many deep and important questions about God, sin, death, justice, the wicked, wisdom, and the transient nature of humanity. What truths are being expressed in the following four texts? Job chapter 13 and verse 28. I waste away like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. Job chapter 13 and verse 28. 
I waste away like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. Job chapter 15, verses 14, 15, and 16. What is man that he should be pure and clean, or he who is born of a woman that he should be righteous and just? Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones, angels. Indeed, the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less pure and clean is the one who is repulsive and corrupt, man who drinks unrighteousness and injustice like water. Job chapter 19, verses 25, 26, and 27. For I know that my Redeemer and Vindicator lives, and at the last he will take his stand upon the earth. Even after my mortal skin is destroyed by death, yet from my immortal flesh I will see God, whom I, even I, will see for myself, and my eyes will see him and not another. My heart faints within me. Job chapter 28 and verse 28. But to man he said, Behold the reverential and worshipful fear of the Lord. That is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. Through all these chapters, the arguments continued, neither side conceding its position. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar each in their own way, each with their own agenda, didn't let up in their argument about how people get what they deserve in life. And so, what came upon Job had to be just punishment for his sins. Job, meanwhile, continued to lament the cruel fate that had befallen him, certain that he did not deserve the suffering. Back and forth they sparred, each comforter accusing Job of uttering empty and vain words, and Job doing the same to them. In the end, none of them, including Job, understood all that was going on. How could they? They were speaking from a very limited perspective, which all humans have. If we can get any lesson from the book of Job, one that should be obvious by now, especially after all the speeches of these men, it is that we as humans need humility when we profess to talk about God and the workings of God. We might know some truth, maybe even a lot of truth, but sometimes, as we have discovered with these three men, we might not necessarily know the best way to apply the truths that we know. Look around at the natural world. Why does this alone show you how limited you are in what you know about even the simplest of things? The Entrance of Elihu From Job chapter 26 to 31, the tragic hero of this story, Job, gives his final speech to the three men. Though eloquent and passionate, he basically repeats the argument he has been making all along. 
I do not deserve what has been happening to me, period. Again, Job represents so much of humanity in that many people suffer things they don't deserve. And the question, in many ways the hardest question of all, is why? In some cases, the answer to suffering is relatively easy. People clearly bring the trouble on themselves. But so often, and especially in the case of Job, that's not what happened. And so the question of suffering remains. Let's listen to Job chapter 31 from the Amplified Bible. I have made a covenant agreement with my eyes. How then could I gaze lustfully at a virgin? For what is the portion I would have from God above, and what heritage from the Almighty on high? Does not tragedy fall justly on the unjust, and disaster to those who work wickedness? Does not God see my ways, and count all my steps? If I have walked with falsehood, or if my foot has chased after deceit, oh, let him weigh me with accurate scales, and let God know my integrity. If my step has turned away from the way of God, or if my heart has covetously followed my eyes, or if any spot of guilt has stained my hands, then let me plant, and let another eat from the results of my labor, and let my crops be uprooted and ruined. If my heart has been enticed, and I was made a fool by a woman, or if I have covetously lurked at my neighbor's door until his departure, let my wife grind meal like a bond slave for another man, and let others kneel down over her, for adultery is a heinous and lustful crime. Moreover, it would be a sin punishable by the judges, for it is a fire which consumes to Abaddon, destruction, ruin, final torment, and illicit passion would burn and rage and uproot all my life's increase, destroying everything. If I have despised and rejected the claim of my male or female servants when they filed a complaint against me, what then could I do when God arises to judge me? When he calls me to account, what will I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make my servant? And did not the same one fashion us both in the womb? If I have withheld from the poor what they desired, or have caused the eyes of the widow to look in vain for relief, or have eaten my morsel of food alone and did not share it with the orphan. But from my youth the orphan grew up with me as with a father, and from my mother's womb I have been the widow's guide. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, or any poor person without covering, if his loins have not thanked and blessed me for clothing them, and if he was not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I have lifted my hand against the orphan because I saw that the judges would be my help at the council gate, then let my shoulder fall away from its socket and my arm be broken off at the elbow. For tragedy from God is a terror to me, and because of his majesty and exultation, I can do nothing nor endure facing him. If I have put my trust and confidence in gold, 
or have declared fine gold my hope and assurance, if I gloated and rejoiced because my wealth was great, and because my powerful hand alone had obtained so much, if I beheld the sun as an object of worship when it shone, or the moon going in its splendor, and my heart became secretly enticed by them, and my hand threw a kiss from my mouth in respect to them. This also would have been a heinous sin calling for judgment, for I would have denied God above. Have I rejoiced at the destruction of the enemy who hated me, or exulted in malicious triumph when evil overtook him? No, I have not allowed my mouth to sin by cursing my enemy and asking for his life. I assure you, the men of my tent have said, Who can find one in need who has not been satisfied with his meat? The stranger has not lodged in the street because I have opened my door to the traveler. Have I concealed my transgression like Adam or like other men by hiding the wickedness in my bosom? Because I feared the great multitude and the contempt of families terrified me so that I kept silence and did not acknowledge my sin and did not go out of the door. Oh, that I had one to listen to me. Look, here is my signature mark. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my adversary write out his indictment and put his vague accusations in tangible form. Oh, that I had one to listen to me. Look, here is my signature mark. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my adversary write out his indictment and put his vague accusation in tangible form. Surely I would proudly bear it on my shoulder and bind the scroll around my head like a crown. I would count out to him the number of my steps with every detail of my life, approaching his presence as if I as if I were a prince. For if my land had cried out against me and its furrows weeped together, if I had eaten its fruit without paying for them, or have caused its rightful owners to lose their lives, let them, let thorns grow instead of wheat, and stinkwood and cockleburs instead of barley. So the words of Job with his friends are finished. As chapter 31 comes to a close, Job has been talking about the kind of life he led, a life in which nothing he had done justified what was happening to him now. Then the final verse of the chapter, the words of Job are ended. Now we will listen to the first five verses of Job, chapter 32. What is happening and what is Elihu's charge against Job and the other men? So these three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes and could not be persuaded otherwise by them. But Elihu, the son of Barakai, the Buzite, of the family of Ram, became indignant. 
His indignation was kindled and burned, and he became upset with Job because he justified himself rather than God, and even expressed doubts about God's character. Elihu's anger burned against Job's three friends because they had found no answer and were unable to determine Job's error. And yet they had condemned Job and declared him to be in the wrong and responsible for his own afflictions. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because the others were years older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouths of these three men, he burned with anger. Here is the first time that this man, Elihu, is mentioned in the book of Job. He obviously heard some of the long discussions, though we are not told just when he appeared on the scene. He must have come later because he was not mentioned as being with the other three men when they first came. What we do know, however, is that he wasn't satisfied with the answers he had heard during whatever part of the dialogue he heard. In fact, we're told that his anger and indignation had been kindled over what he had heard. For the next six chapters, then, this man Elihu seeks to give his understanding and explanation of the issues that all these men confronted because of the calamity that struck Job. Job chapter 32 and verse 2 said that Elihu was angry with Job because he justified himself rather than God, a distortion of Job's true position. What does this tell you about how you need to be careful in the ways that you interpret other people's words? What is the best way for you to learn to try to put the best construction rather than the worst on what people say? Elihu's Defense of God A lot of commentary has been written over the ages about Elihu and his speech, some seeing it as a major turning point in the direction of the dialogue. Yet it's really not that easy to see where Elihu adds anything so new or so groundbreaking that it changes the dynamic of the dialogue. Instead, he seems largely to be giving the same arguments that the other three had done in their attempt to defend the character of God against the charge of unfairness in regard to the sufferings of Job. Listen to Job chapter 34, verses 10 through 15. As you listen, ponder these three questions. What truths is Elihu expressing here? What do they parallel what the other men have said before? And though his words were true, why were they inappropriate for the current situation? Job chapter 34, verses 10 through 15. Therefore, hear me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God that he would do wickedness and from the Almighty to do wrong. For God pays a man according to his work 
and he will make every man find appropriate compensation according to his way. Surely God will not act wickedly, nor will the Almighty pervert justice. Who put God in charge over the earth, and who has laid on him the whole world? If God should determine to do so, if he should gather to himself, that is, withdraw from man, his life-giving spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together, and man would return to dust. Perhaps what we can see with Elihu, as with these other men, is fear. The fear that God is not what they think him to be. They want to believe in the goodness and the justice and the power of God, and so, what does Elihu do but utter truths about the goodness, the justice, and the power of God? He says to Job, For his eyes are on the ways of man, and he sees all his steps. There is no darkness nor shadow of death where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. Job chapter 34, verses 21 and 22. Behold, God is mighty, but despises no one. He is mighty in strength and understanding. He does not preserve the life of the wicked, but gives justice to the oppressed. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but they are on the throne with kings, for he has seated them forever, and they are exalted. Job chapter 36, verses 5 through 7. As for the Almighty, we cannot find him. He is excellent in power, in judgment, and abundant justice. He does not oppress. Therefore men fear him. He shows no partiality to any who are wise of heart. Job chapter 37 and verses 23 and 24. I read those verses from the New King James Version. If what these verses say is true, then the only logical conclusion one must draw is that Job is getting what he deserves. What else could it be? Elihu, then, was trying to protect his own understanding of God in the face of such terrible evil befalling such a good man as Job. Have you ever faced a time when something happened that made you fearful for your faith? How did you respond? Looking back, what might you have done differently? Rationality of evil. All four of these men, believers in God, believers in a God of justice, found themselves in a dilemma. How to explain Job's situation in a rational and logical manner that was consistent with their understanding of the character of God? Unfortunately, they ended up taking a position that turned out basically wrong in their attempt to understand evil or at least the evil that befell Job. Ellen G. White offers a powerful comment in this regard. It is impossible to explain the origin of sin so as to give a reason for its existence. 
Sin is an intruder, for whose presence no reason can be given. It is mysterious, unaccountable. To excuse it is to defend it. Could excuse for it be found, or cause be shown for its existence, it would cease to be sin. The Great Controversy, pages 492 and 493. Though she uses the word sin, suppose we replace that word with another word, one that has a similar meaning, evil. Then the quote could read, It is impossible to explain the origin of evil so as to give a reason for its existence. Evil is an intruder for whose presence no reason can be given. It is mysterious, unaccountable. To excuse it is to defend it. Could excuse for it be found, or cause be shown for its existence, it would cease to be evil. So often when tragedy strikes, people will say or think, I don't understand this, or this doesn't make sense. This is precisely what Job's complaint had been about all along. There is a good reason that Job and his friends can't make sense of it. Evil itself doesn't make sense. If we could understand it, if it made sense, if it fit into some logical and rational plan, then it wouldn't be that evil. It wouldn't be that tragic, because it would serve a rational purpose. Consider these verses about the fall of Satan and the origin of evil. How much sense does his fall make? Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 12 through 17. Son of man, take up a dirge, funeral poem to be sung, for the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You have the full measure of perfection and the finishing touch of completeness, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold, the workmanship of your settings and your sockets was in you. They were prepared on the day that you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers and protects, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire, sparkling jewels. You were blameless in your ways, from the day you were created until unrighteousness and evil were found in you. Through the abundance of your commerce, you were internally filled with lawlessness and violence, and you sinned. Therefore I have cast you out as a profane and unholy thing from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire." Your heart was proud and arrogant because of your beauty. You destroyed your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I lay you before kings that they might look at you. Here's a perfect being created by a perfect God in a perfect environment. He's exalted, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty, covered in precious stones, an anointed cherub who was in the holy mountain of God. And yet, even with all that, and having been given so much, 
This being corrupted himself and allowed evil to take over. What could have been more irrational and illogical than the evil that came to infect the devil? What is your own experience with how irrational and inexplicable evil is? The Challenge of Faith Certainly the primary characters of the book of Job as mere mortals seeing through a glass darkly, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 12, were working from a very limited perspective, a very limited understanding of the nature of the physical world, much less the spiritual one. Interesting, too, that in all these debates about the evil that befell Job, None of the men, Job included, discussed the role of the devil, the direct and immediate cause of all of Job's ills. And yet, despite their own confidence about how right they were, especially Elihu, their attempts to explain Job's suffering rationally all fell short. And of course, Job knew that their attempts failed. Even with our understanding of the story's cosmic background, how well are we able to rationalize and explain the evil that befell Job? Let's consider Job chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 10. Again, even with all this revealed, what other questions remain? There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God with reverence, and abstained from and turned away from evil, because he honored God. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. He also possessed seven thousand sheep, three thousand camels, five hundred yoke pairs of oxen, five hundred female donkeys, and a very great number of servants, so that this man was the greatest and wealthiest and most respected of all the men of the East, Northern Arabia. His sons used to go in turn and feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send word and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of their feasting were over, Job would send for them and consecrate them, rising early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Job did this at all such times. Now there was a day when the sons of God, angels, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan, adversary accuser, also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Then Satan answered the Lord, from roaming around on the earth and from walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered and reflected on my servant Job? For there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God with reverence and abstains from and turns away from evil because he honors God. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? 
Have you not put a hedge of protection around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and conferred prosperity and happiness upon him, and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch, destroy all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold that Job has is in your power. Only do not put your hand on the man himself. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, and the donkeys were feeding beside them, and the Sabians attacked and swooped down on them and took away the animals. They also killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger also came and said, The fire of God, lightning, has fallen from the heavens and has burned up the sheep, and the servants, and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels, and have taken them away and have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came from across the desert and struck the four corners of the house and it fell on the young people and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head in mourning for the children. And he fell to the ground and worshipped God. He said, Naked without possession I came into this world from my mother's womb, and naked I will return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin nor did he blame God. Again, there was a day when the sons of God, angels, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan, adversary, accuser, also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Then Satan answered the Lord, from roaming around on the earth and from walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered and reflected on my servant Job? For there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God with reverence and abstains from and turns away from evil because he honors God and still He remains and holds tightly to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. Satan answered the Lord, 
skin for skin. Yes, a man will give all he has for his life. But put forth your hand now, and touch his bone and his flesh, and severely afflict him, and he will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome boils and agonizingly painful sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And Job took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself, and he sat down among the ashes, rubbish heaps. Then his wife said to him, Do you still cling to your integrity and your faith and trust in God without blaming him? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the spiritually foolish women speaks, ignorant and oblivious to God's will. Shall we indeed accept only good from God and not also accept adversity and disaster? In spite of all this, Job did not sin with words from his lips. With the opening chapters of Job before us, we have a view of things that none of these men did. Nevertheless, even now, the issues remain hard to understand. As we heard, far from his evil bringing this suffering to him, it was precisely Job's goodness that caused God to point him out to the devil. So the man's goodness and desire to be faithful to God led this to happen to him? How do you understand this? And even if Job had known what was going on, wouldn't he have cried out, Please, God, use someone else. Give me back my children, my health, my prosperity. Job didn't volunteer to be the guinea pig. Who would? So how fair was all this to Job and to his family? Meanwhile, even though God won his challenge with the devil, we know the devil has not conceded defeat. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 12. So, what was the purpose? And also, whatever good ultimately came out of what happened to Job, was it worth the death of all these people and all the suffering that Job went through? If these questions remain for us, though more answers are coming, imagine all the questions that Job had. And yet, Here's one of the most important lessons we can take from the book of Job. That is, to live by faith and not by sight. To trust in God and stay faithful to him even when, like Job, you cannot rationalize or explain why things happen as they do. You don't live by faith when everything is fully and rationally explained. You live by faith when, like Job, you trust and obey God even when you cannot make sense of what is happening around you. What are the things you have to trust God for 
even though you don't understand them. How will you continue to build that trust even when you don't have answers? Let's continue exploring. Here are a few thoughts to ponder and questions to consider. In a discussion concerning the question of faith and reason, author John Hedley Brook wrote about the German philosopher Immanuel Kant, 1724-1804, and his attempt to understand the limits of human knowledge, especially when it came to the working of God. For Kant, quote, the question of justifying the ways of God to man was one of faith, not of knowledge, as his example of an authentic stance in the face of adversity, Kant chose Job, who had been stripped of everything save a clear conscience, submitting before a divine decree he had been right to resist the advice of friends who had sought to rationalize his misfortune. The strength of Job's position consisted in his knowing what he did not know, what God thought he was doing in piling misfortune upon him. End quote. Science and Religion, New York, Cambridge University Press, 2006, pages 207 and 208. The men in the book of Job and now Elihu thought they could explain what happened to Job in a simple cause-and-effect relationship. For them, the cause was Job's sin. The effect was his suffering. What could be more clear-cut, theologically sound, and rational than that? However, their reasoning was wrong. A powerful example of the fact that reality and the God who created and sustains that reality doesn't necessarily follow our understanding of how God and the world he created work. As we have heard and learned in all the long speeches about poor Job's situation and why it happened, the devil was not once mentioned. Why is that so? What does it tell us about how limited these men were in their understanding, despite all the truths that they had? What could their ignorance teach you about your own, despite all the truths that we have? When we take into our hands the management of things with which we have to do, and depend upon our own wisdom for success, we are taking a burden which God has not given us and are trying to bear it without His aid. But when we really believe that God loves us and means to do us good, we shall cease to worry about the future. We shall trust God as a child trusts a loving parent. Then our troubles and torments will disappear. 
for our will is swallowed up in the will of God. That paragraph is from Ellen G. White's book, Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings, pages 100 and 101. What is the best way for you to learn this kind of trust and faith? What choices are you making now that will make your faith either stronger or make your faith weaker? ambassadorgroup.org This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.